my favorite well my favorite parts of the 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 continuity that you get with this podcast is you get continual Lewis Cornfeld jewels being dropped with different guests. Tell me about it. But, <laughs> you're not some you're not some boring straight man across from, you know, incredibly good looking people. Yeah. You're I feel like you are sometimes more interesting than your guests and I just want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Oh god. This time. Oh well, no. That, <laughs> to no that, fault of their own. Oh, you just god. You, you happen to be a, a very interesting Yikes. smart a compelling dude. Well, I feel I never listened to these. Mm-hmm. Um, so you like, were there. Well, I, I relive I, it. Yeah, exactly. You don't want that pre-nostalgia. You're not a millennial marketer. I worry sometimes when I'm talking with somebody that I'm just making exactly the same point that I made three episodes ago. You do. You do repeat yourself prob- frequently. Yeah. You keep on reaching back to short stories that you read. No, I'm. I say that in all honesty. Yeah. I think my head is too small for these headphones. Welcome to my life. It's also like it's interesting because I'm getting the first wave of students in classes now who. Mm-hmm feel like they have a relationship with me yeah they feel like they've been part of some dialogue with me now for a year so they're coming to class and like my metaphors are like like oh they know these metaphors already it's like oh man i gotta i gotta like keep up with myself and do you find that they coming in having sort of read lewis cornfeld 101 through the podcast that they uh, are they more receptive to it, or are they like, "Oh, I remember this. I like this." It or depends. Do they demand new stuff. It depends. No, nobody really demands new stuff. But um, <laughs> those improv students—they're not. They're, yeah, <laughs> they're not the biggest mutiny. Yeah. Uh, risk. I have. I have found though, like there, there. I've had a few classes where it kind of feels like I'm not connecting with anybody. And mm-hmm. like, I, I like to talk in classes and I like to get yeah. people talking to me. I, I want people to, to be like verbalizing their experience. I think it's an important part of, of learning it. And I've been finding some classes recently where people are like not talking to me and not sharing anything. And then at the end of the class, I'll find out that like, uh, um, uh, they're like intimidated to say anything. You know what I mean? Like, Tell them to step it the fuck up. I know. They're going to be the, cowards. They're not going to go anywhere in improv. No, I gave I gave a lecture. I actually gave a lecture the other day. I started joking and then I got like dead serious, and it was all about what I called magnet butt, which is when there's a magnet up your ass and a magnet on your chair, and you're having a hard time breaking the magnet. That is an amazing metaphor. I think it's a a, a tough one to make in the magnet theater. Yeah, I know. They got confused because they thought it was a good thing. They thought it was like a positive, oh, we have magnet butt. They were like, oh, we got magnet butt? Yeah. I had had to explain. Oh, finally we made it. I'm I'm telling you guys not to have magnet butt. It requires the extra will to pull yourself off in that same scene. You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Do they, do they all just roll in like this? Is it always this breezy or... Sometimes. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's like Say fucking teeth. pulling teeth. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Uh, this is non sequitur, but there's a sign at our office on the stairwell that just said... Someone had put it up. It was a normal piece of paper. And it just said, security is fixing the clicking. <laughs> That's very. (laughs) (laughs) That was was like security is a folksy grandmother who can't describe what they want to say in the technical proper term. (laughs) They just call it the clicking. And I also thought that is the most boring M. Night Shyamalan movie ever. The clicking. 
But I, I don't know what it is, but I can't wait to go in that stairwell someday and see that the clicking has been fixed. Well, I also really like the implication to that, that like, all right, enough of you have been complaining about the clicking. <laughs> we assure you security is working on it. <laughs> I had never complained about the clicking. I was like, I've been tolerating the clicking. I had no idea the clicking was happening. I feel like I've been awoken to this clicking. I would also be like, well, why security on it? Why not like building maintenance or something? Yeah. What, is, what, is this a, a security issue? Yeah. And if so, is our building security equipped to really deal with it? Like, is, we have wonderful security guards here in our training center, yeah. but I don't know that I would trust them to deal with an M. Night Shyamalan-esque no. mystery clicking in the building. Oh, my, do they have supernatural training? Is that on Is that on the job requirements for security at 1515 Broadway that you must have uh, experience dealing with the clicking? I wouldn't put my life on the line for uh, for ripping. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> Uh, where are you working now? I am, we just, I, if I'm a little slow this morning, this afternoon, what time is it? Um, I just had a holiday party at my work. I, I write for a show on MTV and I guess MTV or MTV two and now MTV mm-hmm. as well. It's called Uncommon Sense. We just wrapped our first season, um, on Wednesday and it's a late night talk show, uh, hosted by Charlemagne the God. Mm-hmm. Who is great? Uh, he's the Black Howard Stern. If you want a sort of uh, entry metaphor to get into it, perfect description. Perfect description. Um, yeah, and it's it's uh, it's just like a normal late night show. We do sketches, bits, guests, questions, like pop cultural stuff. Uh, leans towards hip hop, and we just wrapped our twenty third episode. Congratulations, on Wednesday. Thank That's you so much. Solid number. Good yeah. number. Uh, yeah, we ended on that Michael Jordan number. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but that's where I'm at right now. That's been the last couple months. Cool. Um, How much does that take out of you? Is that like uh, when you're working on a show like that, is that just 100% of your focus and concentration or do you have a life outside of it? I, <laughs> yes, I have a life outside of it. Um, I didn't yeah. mean that to be insulting. No, no, no. Like, <laughs> it's a, you work hard. When you're working yeah. in, in showbiz, you work hard. You, that becomes your life. Yes. Showbiz is the whole thing. Yeah. The, uh, this show, we're real lucky that... Uh, We've got like a great team on it and everybody knows their roles and especially, excuse me, um, by episode 23, things are pretty well worn and everyone sort of instinctually knows how to do their job pretty well. So the amount of effort that it takes at that point is a lot less. It was more earlier on when we were sort of figuring out the flow of the show, but yeah, and th- this is not a, this show in particular is not like a SNL level, never sleep, uh, just stay in 30 Rock, eat in the basement, mm. go upstairs and work kind of deal. This one's, this one's pretty, like, I, go, I get to go home and, and see my wife and things like that. Um, yeah. It's a pretty, pretty easy pace for this gig. Would that be attractive to you, the, the 30 Rock lifestyle? <laughs> of like, of, of writing for SNL? Writing for SNL would, um, and is, of course, uh, I don't think... It's weird. I've noticed, because uh, I sort of quit regularly improvising about a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. because I was writing regularly, so I'd have this nine to five, and then I'd go to a show, and then I'd, I was gone doing comedy stuff for 12 hours a day, which was awesome, but then I was like, oh, well, I, I have this person that I want to see, I want to go see a movie, I want to read a book, I want to... Uh, I don't know, live a life outside of that. And so yeah. that was when I sort of started dialing back on that stuff and became a, a working stiff. Yeah. Doesn't 
get to do improv anymore. There, there's a certain degree of kind of general craziness you, you need to have to just give 110% of yourself to the showbiz lifestyle. Yeah. Or, or there's a degree of just like great life planning. Like I know a couple of people yeah. who are just great. They've mapped out the next 10 years of their lives and they've set aside this time to know that we just don't have social lives anymore for the next three years. Yeah. All we do is work for three years and, and they're doing amazingly well of it. Uh, and I always like admire when someone has that sense of focus and, and that sense of, it, there's almost like a military sense of strategy to it in, in my mind yeah. of just like, you know how to allocate resources in order to navigate yourself to the place that you want to be in the future. And, and you're setting yourself up to eventually have, you know, this social life or, 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 or build a family or like whatever it is. I, I, that's such like a foreign way of thinking to me. Do you, what's your, do you have an MO for like comedy life balance stuff? I wish I did. I don't, I, I guess I do, but, but what's your pie look like? What's your percentage? What would you say God. the actual pie is and what is the ideal pie for you? I don't have a pie. Well, can you walk me through the pie? So a pie. Yeah. You're going to bake a crust that's yeah. going to be made out of dough, okay? Yeah. And then you're going to pick some kind of filling in it. So in my life, the filling would be... Oh, boy. Uh, let's, let's, view it from a, let's view the pie from an aerial perspective. Great. Imagine a circle. Yeah, like a math pie. Like a math pie. Right. What's your pie? <laughs> <laughs> I think I need a little more. <laughs> My pie in terms of like allocating mental resources and time and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Right now or the plan? Both. Yeah. The actual and the ideal. I teach more often than I do anything else. I teach yeah. like five or six classes a week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm in like two or three shows. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of my time I write for uh, for the truth. Um, uh, so I'm in my spare time I'm trying to develop story material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of that chunk of time is uh, um, being very lazy with Megan <laughs> and reading as much as I can. And depending yeah. on what mood you catch me in, there are certain times where I'm a real hermit and, and kind of the only thing I'm good for is reading for a week solid until I get it out of my system and I'm, I'm capable to be like a functioning adult again. Yeah. But I go through these periods where where I like I just like don't relate to things out side of of my own imagination and i need to just kind of like feed my imagination with stuff yeah that's my pie it's not a great pie it's something i've kind of like landed onto it Mm -hmm. i should plan more (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) sure you know best laid plans you know you can plan all you want let me ask you this because you do a lot of work on on tv and you on both sides you write and you act Mm -hmm. do you love it and here's what I mean by that. Like when I walk into a theater, there's something about the space of a theater. It doesn't even mm-hmm. matter what theater it is, but there's something about the space of a theater th- that just like connects with some like animal part of my brain. It just like feels like I'm in the right place. Yeah. And, and it's very easy to be in a theater. I don't have to force myself to ever be in a theater, but I find that like on the couple of like movie sets I've been on mm-hmm. working crew, uh, uh, that same feeling isn't there. It's like finding tricks and stuff like that to keep myself from not becoming so irritated all day long. Now that's from a crew side of it. I don't know right. what it is from an acting side of it. But do you like? Do you feel like you're in your element when you're on a set or in a studio? Uh, yeah, I think more and more. I think definitely at first it felt very foreign and it felt disconnected from 
the parallel things that I would do on stage that I was like, oh, well, I'm being, I'm trying to be funny in a scene here. Now I'm just going to be try to try to be funny in a scene, but it's not in a black box theater with a bunch of like sweaty kids. Uh, now there's all this other stuff around us. Um, but it, it didn't feel the same initially. I think it starts to feel more similar and more comfortable. And I think, uh, especially on this gig, the, uh, on, on the show that I write for episode five, six, you get in there and it starts to feel playful and mm. you can start to feel the energy that does feel a little bit more like, uh, that athletic group work that you do on an improv stage. Mm. You just have different, everyone has very stratified roles. Um, whereas on an improv stage, everyone is everything. Mm. When you go to a TV show, like the one that we do, there's, there's a boom operator. There's uh, the audio guys who are like hitting sound effects at certain times. There's the host. There's all these PAs. There's the director. There's all these other things where your roles are very specifically outlined and it would be uh, uncool for you to act like it was an improv stage. Mm-hmm. So I think that takes some getting used to. And that, that took me a while to get used to of figuring out what my role was. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, I have this idea that I think would be funny. But it's not my idea to tell that idea to, to the host. It's my idea to tell it to someone else who then they go tell the host. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that like a clearly laid out thing or, or, or do you have to kind of like figure out on your own with every, new, with every new place that you go to kind of like what the hierarchy is or like what the protocol is? It's totally different every place. And yeah. it's, it's maddening. And, it's, and I think coming from so much time in the improv world, you just assume that everyone went through the same improv classes that you did. Yeah. And has the same ethos, but it's so not true, and it's terrifying. I had a good buddy <laughs> in college who, who, um, like for a while, we were both thinking of like, oh, maybe we'll like join a union and 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 work in like an electric department. Oh, and cool. it became like really clear early on that this guy was cut out for that, and mm-hmm. I absolutely was not. I just like hated <laughs> working crew on set. You kept shocking yourself. I was fine. I just hated it. You know, it was yeah. just like you're lugging a hundred pounds of cable up to the roof and then down from right. the roof at two o'clock in the morning. And it just sucked. It wasn't my bag. And, and there's like a culture to it that people, you know, the people immediately who take to that culture. It, it, you, as soon as you meet them, you're like, up, oh, you're, you're, you're born crew. You yeah. Know? Uh, um, and <laughs> here's the thing that like branded on their forehead. Right. Local one. Well, kind of. <laughs> You know, you know the people. They're, they're, yeah, they're yeah. people who can like chug through a bottle of vodka and still work a perfectly great night. You know what I mean? Like, why like, are you amazing. accusing all uh, crew members of being alcoholics? Right they now? have. Well, there's a reason why you work those crazy hours, right? You're running away from something. You're not. I'm sorry, um, but I'm sorry to be insulted. It's just the solid <laughs> truth. But I remember I was working this one job, and and we had to move a bunch of C stands, and. Um, and, you know, I started carrying a couple of them to the place and I got like chewed out by, uh, by like the shop steward on the set and, mm-hmm. and, you know, was told that, um, like we're pushing for overtime right now. So you, you got to take one thing at a time really slow to mm-hmm. get to that next place. And, and it drove me completely mad. The, the kind of like professional way to do stuff and like the rules and the hierarchy and all that stuff, even though I get that like uh, people need their money and, and, and you're mm-hmm. making more cash. Away, it drove me crazy. I, 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 like I really, 
as lazy as I am, I'm also the kind of person where like, what's the quickest, simplest way to just effectively do the thing that we need to do and get on with it. Right. Which that's the improv world is very appealing to me because it has that DIY thing of like, just get it done. Just go and do your thing right now. Are you vigorously anti-union or? No, no, no. I'm very, I'm very pro-union. I'm okay. very pro-union. I, I, the union made my family. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, 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 no, I'm very pro-union. Uh, um, uh, no, I hear you. It's a. That's probably an illustration of maybe an abuse of. Yeah, for sure. That unified power for I sure. Think. Yeah, yeah. It, but it, it, like my point with that is just, um, I forget what my point is with it. Moving on, <laughs> completely moving on. No, no. What what I actually meant by the original question was like. So for me, I'm not, I'm not a, a terribly goal-oriented person. And mm-hmm. usually when I make plans and have a goal in mind, I, 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 it's just like disaster. Um, I'm more the kind of person where like when I find myself in an environment that like I fit into, mm-hmm. I can then do very well. I just like take a pretty strong route and I'm able to like thrive. So it's yeah. kind of a thing of like, I don't know what direction to go in, but I sort of know that like when my roots touch a good soil, uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I plant in that. And I found that, that small theaters are, are an environment that just kind of like feel like I'm in the right spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, so, so that's something that you've grown into in, in studios. It, like what I'm saying is it, does it feel like being at home or does it feel like being in a place that unlocks your best part of yourself? Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. I, I don't think any place is like an improv theater, uh, wherever it is or, or, or an improv group, because at the end of the day, it's a job for everyone there. And, your job isn't necessarily to share yourself as much as you can to do trust falls to like love each other and support each other no matter what. Like that's not, that's not the, that's not the contract that you all signed coming in. The contract that you all signed coming in was I will do my job and then you will pay me this much. Like it's a, it's a gig. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't, wonderful flowering artistic moments or moments of collaboration and beauty and wonder betwixt us all. But I think there's a different contract that you sign going in. So it, it, it just, it just can never achieve that awesomeness that you would get like in a theater situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I don't know. I, I think probably the best shows do have that, have that level and that, that feel um, that they get closer to it, that it does more, more feel like everyone coming together, sort of pulling their own weight and really caring about it and wanting to make it the best it can be. Mm. Um, but I think that's rare. I think that takes like a ton of energy to be on that all the time. Yeah. Talk to me about being funny God. Uh, on, uh, on days when you're not funny. It's, it, you talk to me about it. It's the worst, right? I, I got a note <laughs> from, uh, uh, you know, Nate DeFort in Chicago? Uh, he's he's, he's I, one I of the, the producers name. at Second City. Yeah, yeah. He's a really cool guy. He was my producer when I worked um, very briefly for, for Second City mm-hmm. on the cruise ships. And uh, the last note that he gave us before he left the ship was, your job is to be funny even when you're not. Yeah. Which is a great note. It, yeah. it, it, there was something that I f- was like weirdly relaxing about that note of like, oh, great, it's a job. It doesn't matter how I feel do your job. And my job uh, f- 
for these several months happens to be just I got to make people laugh. Yeah. So, so, so talk to me about that a little bit about you have to show up in the morning and, and write material that's going to be funny. Yeah. And you have to do it no matter what, no yeah. matter what, uh, no matter what's going on at home, no matter what's going on with your friends, no matter what's going on on other jobs or no matter what shitty stuff is going on in the world, you have to do it. And, and yeah, I think that's like, that's when the big realization of, oh, a job is when someone pays you to do something no matter what. Mm-hmm. That it's like, there's a reason why it feels unnatural to do that. And you're like, but I don't feel funny, but I have to do it, but I don't want to do it because it doesn't feel like this is what I would do in this moment. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that's why someone gave you money to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds very, I don't know, like crass and, and just cut and dry, but I think that is it. And, and I think that can take some of the magic out of it sometimes. But I think the lesson in that is that sometimes it's like not magic. It's, it's just like you just have to do this thing. We get spoiled as yeah. an improviser. Oh, you, yeah. you get so used to that feeling of inspiration kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, lifting you and catching the wind and, and, and letting just kind of like push you where you're going. So when you get into a situation where I have to have something funny in your inbox in an hour yeah. and I have no ideas and it means that you're going to be chugging out the actual work of coming up with bits and sketches and, and, and jokes and they're not going to feel funny as you're writing them. So what like, I don't know exactly what I'm asking here. Mentally, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you push yourself through that when you're not feeling inspired to do it, but, but your job is you have to have six jokes in, in your boss's inbox tonight. You do it and you're forced to, I think a lot of people say this, as soon as you're put yourself on a deadline and there's some sort of threat that isn't just silence from the audience, you become immediately less of a perfectionist and infinitely, just immediately in, in one assignment, infinitely more confident in your abilities as a creator. Because mm-hmm. you realize that if someone puts a gun to your head and says, and, that, and that's what it's like, <laughs> um, that if someone puts a gun to your head and says, give me six jokes in the next 10 minutes, and you do it, and there's six terrible jokes that you realize that, well, I don't know, are there really six terrible jokes? And you go back and look at them, and you're like, I don't know, I guess I've been doing this for 10 years, and my six terrible jokes are actually pretty decent, and like no one knows anyway, but it's like that's what you've trained for, yeah. is to be able to force yourself to do it. Yeah. Um, and then you do it, and it becomes so much less special, and then you have this burst of confidence of, oh man, my worst work is all right. My, wor- my most rushed, uh, forced, uninspired work because I've been doing this for so long, I can actually trust. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's not bad. And, and you start there, and that's why you got a team. You, know? you send it to your boss, and then he's like, these three are terrible. Let's make them better. Mm-hmm. And then it starts rolling from there. There's no cliff that you have to walk off, which it definitely feels like at the beginning, for sure. That you're like, oh, if this isn't funny, I'm, I'll, I'll have to move back to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Which... It's not a bad place to do comedy. They got some great stuff out there. Sure. <laughs> There's a lot going on in Michigan. Oh my god, yeah. You can find comedy anywhere if you want. You to. really can. You really can. Uh um I was just talking with somebody about this earlier today of, of like hitting a wall 
developing stories and hitting mm-hmm. a wall when you're developing a story. And so often for me, the out of that is when I start to actually imagine who's going to be in this story, what actor is going to be playing this character, mm-hmm. I start to find that I'm able to begin writing, putting dialogue into that person's mouth. And it, it starts to, I can write jokes as long as I'm not writing jokes in my voice, you know what I mean? If I can yeah. hear somebody else's voice in my head, jokes will start coming that aren't necessarily great jokes, but they're something. You, know you can I mean? like, like separate it from yourself and suddenly you have an angle on yes. it. Yes. Yeah. So do you have any mental adjustments when you are on deadline to get yourself going or is it just put pen to paper? Or finger to keyboard in the, <laughs> in the modern idiom? <laughs> There's a fun, I guess, one of the challenging but helpful things about writing for a show with a host where you have a specific demo that like is your audience, where you have a specific audience, is that you have these other sort of boundaries and other filters that you can put it through where it sort of restricts your options. And by restricting those options of saying, okay, if our audience is not, the, like, th- this joke doesn't need to be funny to, like, older white women, because older white women don't watch our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or this joke, uh, it it's, doesn't need to be so smart as, like, uh, a, a, like, daily show bit, because that's not the voice of our show. Mm-hmm. But suddenly you start winnowing down to, like, what that joke could be, uh, and, and that it, it gives you these cool obstacles that you have to navigate around because they're not telling the joke in your voice. You're telling it in the voice of the show or the project that you're working on. If you're writing a Dove soap ad and you have to write the funniest line for a mom to say to her kid when she gets out of the shower and he hands her a towel, it's not necessarily going to be 100% Lewis Cornfeld. It's going to be Lewis Cornfeld in the shape of a Dove soap ad. You'd be surprised how much of my voice I could work into that scenario. <laughs> You'd watch that ad and you'd be like, man, that really feels God like him. damn, that's Lewis all the way through. Yeah. That really felt like... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm uh, uh, nowhere seen but everywhere felt. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but no, I think that's an added bonus that you have going in. Or at least th- th- that I have going in, which... Parameters, you have yeah, parameters. Yeah, yeah, you have parameters, yeah. you know? And I think that's... It's the difference between improvising with no suggestion and then improvising with someone telling you an entire story about their day. Yeah. Where suddenly you have a lot more shipwreck to build the coral on top of as opposed to like having nothing where you're like, I don't know, what do you think is funny? And it's like, well, no, what do we think is funny based on uh, light pop culture news that happened in the last three days uh, that, you know, 17-year-old kids would know about? Mm-hmm. But suddenly I'm like already down here and I'm like, oh, well, it's these three things. Now, what's the funny way to say that in the voice of our show? Mm-hmm. Um, those restrictions almost make it easier in yeah. a way. They make it maybe sometimes more mundane because you can't be as creative. You have to be creative in a smaller, like you're not working with meters. You're working with like centimeters or right. millimeters. Um, so that, you, you know, it's, it's as restrictive as it is freeing. What do, that's good. That was nice. It's a, one of those interesting contradictions that make life so rich. Yes. Radio Lab that and like play it back. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. We can make that the new like thing, mm-hmm. right? In the show. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, here's a super broad question. What, yeah. what do you find funny? 
What do I find funny? Yeah, when you're sitting down to work, what do you what do you look for like that catches you? What you know? It's it's it, it changes, right? Um, changes all the time. But I think something I'm naturally drawn to is hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, And moments where things that seem so sure are, if you examine it one second further or sort of dim up the lights a little bit, you suddenly realize it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Um, And and sort of constructing arguments around that. Um, It sounds very uh, sort of wonkish, but I think... Those, those puzzles that are out there in the world that are fun to solve in comedic ways where you can sort of hang jokes on them and make, make bold assertions because they're not themselves perfect arguments, mm-hmm. that they're such flawed arguments. You're like, this is bullshit over here. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Let's examine the ways that it's bullshit and have some fun with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that then restricts what things... Like, it's not really fun to call out the hypocrisy of, I don't know, like, like a, a, a like three-year-old child, because they don't, they, you know, their arguments aren't that sound. Yeah, though um, the person who's going out of their way to make fun of a three-year-old child can be very funny indeed. Yeah. I love uh, that also person. Also, that person is great. Yeah. And what a, what a terrible, terrible father. Um, Doesn't even have to be a father. It can be can be an uncle. Yeah, it could be an uncle. It's definitely got to be a man. Yeah, <laughs> definitely could be a woman. Um, what about you? What, what do you What do you find funny? And do you find that the things that you find funny have remained consistent throughout your life, or have they changed and evolved? I'm sure that they have. Uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it depends on the situation, right? Like, it, it, surprise is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to enjoy. I like people with a false sense of confidence mm-hmm. or, or, or ego is very funny. Yeah. When you know what someone is really proud of, mm-hmm. that's usually their Achilles heel and it's usually the thing that's really funny about them. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's where your, your vanity is kind of most distorted about things. And so seeing the way that someone filters their reality through this distortion tells you a lot about how they feel about themselves and that's usually really funny. I find people's weaknesses very funny. <laughs> like I I forget where I read it but but I think that it's very true that like comedy is the place where where we love you for your weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, your weaknesses aren't your undoing. It, it's the very thing that connects us to you. And, and, and you know, comedy is a place where we can watch people get themselves into trouble in a very safe environment. Mm-hmm. And we can enjoy, uh, uh, I guess, like that release valve of, like, indulging in, 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 in seeing our own, like, weaknesses reflected back to us. Yeah, you know I mean? it's, uh, it's like playing paintball. You're going to war and the things that normally would hurt outside of this space, but we have these sure. special parameters where sure. suddenly things uh, don't hurt. It, yeah. l- it looks like people should be dying and, and having their lives ruined all over, but in fact, it's, it's, it's funny. We're playing with like fake bullets that are neon and, and splattering all over. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That, that about covers it. 
How, uh, um, you've always seemed like a pretty, like, driven guy and a pretty together guy. Is there, like, a, like a through line to you? Like, have you been following the sense of, like, true north throughout your life? Do you know what I mean? Of, yeah, like, did I write down as, like, a fifth grader that I was like, I want to do this with my life? And then, yeah, do, do you, like, is there something at, at the end of the rainbow that's, like, pulling you towards it? No. There should be more of one, and I think maybe that's some of the stuff that I am encountering more as I, you know, keep doing things. Um, I think I, I, I got in, I, I think two things happened. Um, I got into comedy because, like, like we all did, because we were getting, like, picked on or, or no one listened to us, or we were the weird kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were like the one left out, and then we developed this sense of like, well, you want to hurt me, I'm going to make you laugh before you have the chance to hurt me, um, or this is going to be my defense mechanism that I'm going to like make people laugh. Uh, and then I think that that happened. Like I like I, I was never like watching like Saturday Night Live as like a kid. Like I didn't like watch TV, or I was not exposed to comedy in any way. As a child, there was no, like, list or, like, dream as a kid of, oh, my God, I want to do this. I think I was sort of separate from all of that, extremely industrious and had, like, pretty type A uh, tiger, tiger mom parents and mm-hmm. stuff. So to answer, was there a true north? No, but I knew I liked doing that thing as I developed sort of into a, an adult human. I knew I liked doing comedy and I knew that, or, and, and just part of my nature happened to be that I think I was, you know, a, a pretty hardworking guy most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I think maybe I was like a speedboat without a rudder mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, you were a good student. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you tell me, Lou, was I? I think so. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know you. No, I would saying, imagine uh, so. As, as, a, as, as an, an improv, improv student? student? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't being graded on it or anything. No, no, no. Um, I think I, I, I could use more of that in my life, especially now mm-hmm. where you really have to start now, like there's some moment. Um, but it is. You, you can just skip all around and, and just be wandering through like doing shit that you don't really want to do because you feel like you're grinding away. You mm-hmm. know, there's this like illusion of getting towards some goal that you have simply by working hard. They're like, what's the, is it boxer and animal farm? Or is it just like, I will work harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the difference between that and like the pigs that had this strategic ass plan for right. domination. Yeah. Um, at my worst self, I'm more like that horse where I'm just like this Midwestern thing where I'm like, I'm going to fucking just work harder. It's yeah. Like, to what end, Russ? I don't know. Yeah. Does <laughs> that, is, it, the plow. is that your like default? Do you, do you, is your default putting too much pressure on yourself? Or, 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 or is, your, is your default kind of like, well, if you dig in and work harder, that will like the answer that you're looking for reveals itself to you? Yeah. And yeah. it's total bullshit. And, and I think I'm only now starting to realize it because... This business is, you, you have no ability to predict what's going to happen and yeah. what hits and what doesn't. And there's so many other factors going on. It's, it's like 
getting mad at yourself for not being able to build a beautiful card house in a hurricane. You, you, have no, you have no control out of anything outside of yourself. And even the things that you do have control over, you can crush it on a, a writing packet or an audition or a meeting or uh, a, a season of a show. You can think that you nailed it. And some butterfly effect from thousands of miles away or some boardroom or some budget cut or some uh, think piece pops up that uh, inspires some casting director to think something else and then go this way. That, and if you are someone who has a mindset somewhat like me, <laughs> you'll be like, oh, I was responsible for all of that failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you, you start to put it all in yourself and it just... It can really bury you. Uh, and like, I don't know, I think 90% of the battle is freeing yourself from the responsibility of feeling like those external factors are a reflection of your worth. I think that like my own kind of pet theory is that like human beings are, are kind of um, sailors by nature. I read, I read a really interesting book by uh, Buckminster Fuller and he argued that probably, uh, um, uh, I have no idea if there's any science to back this up, but he argued that, <laughs> that probably like our ingenuity was fostered by dealing with water and mm. that uh, places where there are extremes of temperature forced us to come up with twice as many inventions in order to cope with those extremes and uh, forced us to learn how to kind of navigate. We had to navigate through the cold and the ice. We had to learn how to navigate through 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 warmth and create shelter and we had to learn to navigate waters. I, I think part of what drives us as people is um, that just when you think you have it together, uh, uh, a gale wind blows northerly that you didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. And, and you got to figure out how to like use that wind to keep yourself moving the way that you want to be moving. That it's not so much about having a great plan exactly for where you want to be as you have enough of a plan to motivate yourself to go try something. And then the real fun and the real challenge and and the real test of your character becomes in how you are uh, uh, using the unpredictability of the elements around you in order to keep on moving forward. Yeah. And I think that the feeling that comes out of it is like you feel your mind operating and not just like what I mean by that isn't it's not just like shallow like problem solving, but you feel like all of your resources as an individual human being coming together in order Mm -hmm. to uh, uh, um, improvise in order to figure out how to make the best use of the resources that are immediately available to you there. I think that's kind of like a high feeling that keeps us wanting to grow i don't know yeah that's yeah. probably too ridiculous no too i think that's i mean right we're always throwing ourselves out the building trying to learn to fly right and that it's we're, we're, we're always uh figuring out how to do it because i think he, you know what here's a lesson i've learned here's something i've been thinking about this is gonna be good i'm really excited about this uh i have over the past like year or so been more frequently in positions where I am not the most like junior member of the room Mm -hmm. where 
you know, when you're growing up, you're institutionalized within schools and like training centers and all these things to be a student. And then, and, and you're a student and you feel comfortable because there's always people above you. There's always people around you. You, you, you are, you're like warm, you know, you can't get eaten by any of the things outside because there's someone else on the outside or there's no outside. You don't know. You're just surrounded by people on our levels. And then as you keep on, uh, you know, journeying on, you start to find that you are, that like suddenly there's no one above you to ask if that's right. Mm-hmm. And there's other people asking you if it's right. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you're not taught how to do, or at least I wasn't, when I was like, oh shit, oh, you want me to say about this? Well, let me, let me go ask someone, because that's what I've done for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, there's no one to ask. Oh, so it's just me? And then you get to a certain point where you realize no one fucking knows anything, and mm-hmm. everyone is feeling like they are out on the outside and has to trust and reach for some unknown answer somewhere, uh, where it's like, no one knows if this TV show is going to work. Like, people are making their best guess. No one knows if this actor's right for this part. Yeah. No one knows if this person should be on this megawatt team, you know? It's like, I don't know. There's a certain point where it's like Armando's sitting in some room or something. He's like, uh, yeah, uh, Catherine, her. Yeah. It was like, he doesn't fucking know, you know, but there's this assumption when you're growing up that there, everyone answers to this higher power somewhere. And there's this answer above somewhere. Um, but there isn't. And, and that everyone is having to figure it out. They're like, there's no perfect mariner out there in the sea. This is like, this is how you will tie this rope that will keep your, sails tied to this ship right. and this heavy force. It was like some, some motherfucker had to figure that out and like thousands of them died before that one did. Yeah. Uh, and like the answer isn't out there. And I think that's been a big lesson that I've been learning over the past year is that, you know, when you, when you start like pitching things that are very much your own ideas or, uh, things that are very dear to you and you, and you, get to a certain point where you can't second guess stuff or you can't like find metrics or Google something of like, is this a good idea? Mm -hmm. You just sort of have to do it. Yeah. And then someone else is like, is it a good idea? And you're like, is it, is it? And you get caught in this echo chamber of two people saying, is this a good idea? Until someone's like, this is the best idea. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. I was like, they don't fucking know, but you have to, and that's the skill that you practice. Well, what you were talking about, about improv before, about it being that kind of like everybody feel good environment, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it's easy to become addicted to that and, and for oh, that yeah, to, yeah. to create its own sets of problems. And I do think that there are, there is a little bit of like a pie in the sky mentality to the improv culture. What at kind large. of pie? Uh, well, look at it from a bird's eye view. Great. Uh, a pie is just a metaphor for you to figure out how you're allotting your time and resources, <laughs> but in the sky, in an idealistic way. Uh, that was a shit metaphor. It's like, <laughs> uh, um, but at the same time, right? Like the good side to that is on a very small level, you're training people to develop an instinct where your first response is that's great. Mm-hmm. Your first response is to look for the best thing in what's in front of you rather than, that sucks or, or it's not even in, in my mind, a thing about learning to not be critical because you want to be critical. I think you, like the exercise of your critical faculties is one of the greatest rights that you have as an individual. Yeah. It's not, a, not being critical. It, it's a question of n- not letting your <clears throat> go-to response be inactivity. Letting mm-hmm. your go-to response be, let's not act on this thing because I don't have a guarantee that this idea is going to pay off. Yeah. And so instead, you're just fostering this environment where you're chronically in the habit of saying, 
awesome idea. Let's try it out. Let's put it on its feet right now. Yeah. When you get too hooked on that and then it just becomes a thing of we all have to be very lovely all the time, <laughs> then it becomes a, 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 a f- another form of um, maybe the nest being a little bit too safe and a little bit too warm and then you don't take chances outside of this very warm nest where you feel protected by a community of people who are all mm-hmm. showering you with love and praise all the time. But I think that it is like what you're trying to learn from group improv is is to catch that spirit from each other so that you individually have enough confidence to begin letting that be your default and then go off and make your way in this world from the spirit of nobody knows the right answer and nobody has any guarantee yeah. and nobody knows what's going to work. So we might as well begin from a place of great. Let's do that. That's a great idea. Let's work to figure out what's so great about that idea and put that up rather than waste our time yeah. arguing to death and not doing anything at all. Yeah. You know what, that, that makes me think of, because uh, that's, it's such an integral point, and I love the thought of, take this, take this, uh, this sort of personality of saying that's a good idea, it, out, out with you into the, into the real world. Um, not that the improper world isn't the real world. An addition to that that I've noticed that, uh, you know, when 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 I stopped improvising regularly, I get out of the habit of doing that. And it's still instinctually within you. But you sort of have to every once in a while check yourself and be like, oh, right, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, this is how I contribute positively to a group. Um, and that the first thing of, the first moment that you say that's a good idea is when you say it about your own shit. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that I think is a cool difference between stand-ups and improvisers. So a lot of times improvisers will throw things out there, be they initiations, lines, whatever, neutrally and flatly and wait for someone else to yes-and them without yes-anding their self first. Where it's mm-hmm. like, eh. But you go to a stand-up, everything they say is a joke pitch. Everything they say has the subtext of, this thing that I just thought of is so fucking funny. And then they say it. Whereas improvisers say, what if it's a tent mm-hmm. with mom and dad in it? And I've noticed that myself as a default, as an improviser, like if you're in a writer's room and you pitch like an improviser often pitches of like, what if, what if we all uh, got Chinese food? And then someone else is like, yo, it would be fucking sick if we had hot dogs and donuts. Yeah. That it's like that. It's everybody's like that guy, that guy. And yeah. it's like, that idea was terrible. It's like, well, I didn't yes say in my own idea. Right. Right. When it came out that like the first moment of loving an idea has to be like you loving your own. And I think that was like a lesson that I, that I, I continue to have to remind myself that of like, Oh, why didn't that idea go? I just pitched that joke. And I was like, did I pitch that joke? Or did I just say that joke? Like I was telling someone if, if it was raining outside, right? you know, I was like, you have to pitch a joke and believe that the thing that you are saying is so funny. Cause on an improv stage, seven other people have trained for a long time to really listen to you. Outside of that environment, people aren't trained to actively listen to you. They are, and they could be good at it, but it's not the default. The default is like, let's do our job, and you have to get their attention and sell it to them. That every single thing you do is like selling and pitching an idea. And not in a, not in like a cold way, but like, that's, that's it. Your job is to like get other people excited about it. That they're not naturally excited about it. You have to excite other people. It's... It's a weird, uh, like, new political element of things that is, is cool. It's a new challenge, you know? 
And you have to like learn that. How, how are you doing with that? Like without it, because the idea of selling everything all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. is super disheartening from the outside. To super think disheartening. That. Right? Fucking sucks. <laughs> but then there's another way to look at that, right? Which is I have to find what's so fucking cool about what I'm about to tell you. And exactly. I have to make you see why that's so fucking cool. Man. Exactly. And, and that's uh, so much of it is just like tiny little technique moves and, and tweaks of how do you pitch a joke of I used to pitch jokes all the time that were more macro and more about an idea of <laughs> give an example of, of something like, Oh, what if a police officer didn't understand why he was pulling someone over? I was like, I was like, cool. Uh, that's vague. That's, that's a, wow. What a wash. And then the guy next to me, uh, says like, yo, what if, uh, what if like a cop with a giant beard, uh, <laughs> Like ran up to a car and started just asking him trivia questions like, what's the tallest mountain uh, in Asia? And he's like, already that idea has so many more specifics. It's mm-hmm. not a funny idea. It's mm-hmm. not uh, anything more particular. But I was like, well, didn't graspable. I just say that same thing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like it has more uh, more edges to it. And that, like you can start riffing off it. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's a note about like specificity of maybe that's like initiate specifically. Um, and maybe that's it, you know? Maybe that's the note that we're giving in improv when we tell people to be specific. That we're saying, like, don't pitch an idea. Uh, like, get excited about one specific thing so hard that you describe to me exactly what type of sandwich it is and mm-hmm. not simply, the, like, I want lunch, mm-hmm. you know? How, when you're, like, taking a meeting with somebody, when you're not just pitching a joke for somebody else's show, but, but when you're pitching your idea for somebody... Uh, um, is it that same thing just magnified? You know what I mean? Like it, 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 because here's, here's one thing that I am always really curious about. Whenever I go into audition for stuff, mm-hmm. I have a pretty healthy sense of confidence about myself as an improviser. And that confidence abandons me uh, uh, the way that, that Peter denied Christ three times when the cock crew <laughs> crowed, whatever. Uh, um, it's completely gone. And so I walk into like an audition setting empty of, of any feeling like I'm capable of doing this. And then I just have to like do my best to fake it. Yeah. When you're not in an audition setting anymore, but when you're like facing somebody from like Netflix or HBO or, or I'm pitching Netflix and HBO all the time. Great. <laughs> Are you but playing yeah. them off against each other? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That's I, how you got to do it in today's modern fragmented, uh, 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 you know, delivery economy. That's, that's what you got to do. That's what you do. Um, I will not, this is my, this is my thing. If I'm talking to somebody from Netflix, mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, I mentioned this idea at HBO last week. They love it. They're sitting on it right now, but I, I wanted to let you in on the ground floor. That's a phrase I, I like uh, to use. What's the, uh, what's the idea? How can we buy it right now? That's exactly um, every time. This is, that's how you got to create that heat, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> LA's got all the sizzle. You know, and here in New York, we're too we're too no bullshitty. You know, yeah. I guess what I'm asking is uh, uh, when the pressure's on. Uh, uh, how do you steer clear of letting fear and insecurity block you from being able to to jazz somebody about what's jazzing you? I don't. I, uh, I mean, do I? 
Um, I, th- I think it's it's tough. I don't think you always do. Um, I, you said something interesting there of, I try to fake it. Hmm. I was thinking about this the other day of, of is fake confidence different from confidence? Hmm. Is it? Like, does that, like, from the outside, if you're like, oh, that guy's fake confident. I don't know. Isn't he just confident then? Is confidence an, a, a, a metric? Is it an actual measurable metric or is it all fake? That if you are faking it, if you are faking confidence, if you are uh, giving a convincing performance of someone who loves an idea, but deep down or something, you're like, I don't really love that idea or I'm not really confident about it. I don't think it matters from the outside. I, I don't. I don't think that perception is there. I think that's only, uh, like we may we may take that secret to our grave. That we're like this idea that I sold people on. Like I was totally, I totally thought it was a bad idea, or I was totally afraid that it wouldn't work. That um, I think that skill of faking confidence is the biggest thing because that, that, that's all you do, right? If you're 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 asking and answering the question not knowing if the answer is right, right in that immediate moment. Well, it's kind of the same. You're making a choice for yourself, right? The same way that you would be doing in a scene. You come out and you make a choice for yourself. It's just in yeah. this case, you're making the meta choice of confidence. Yeah. And just like in a scene, you know that it's a made up thing until it, it suddenly clicks and then you're just kind of doing it without thinking about it. Yeah. It's, it's perception immediately becomes reality in something that's that, uh, that's that sort of performative as, confidence and yeah. I think that you know it's like what if what if you like go into that audition doing two performances one Lewis performing the most confident version of Lewis and the other one the most confident version of Lewis performing the guy who's in the Dove Soap commercial mm-hmm. you know suddenly it's like it's a double performance you're terrified but from the outside it looks like who's this swaggerful man who just came in and crushed the role of the young baby handing the towel to the mom. Mm-hmm. He's got a beard. We're not going to put him in this commercial. It's weird. It's weird for him to even show it's, off. It's weird for it, but clearly he, didn't read the, the, didn't read the copy. Yeah, Best man for the job, hands down, <laughs> but it just doesn't work for our brand right now. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, right. It's, it's all, it's all an act. Yeah. It's all an act. And, and the people who are great at it are the ones who, don't ever really like question it, you know? Yeah. Like we, we, we might view them as, as, as like blind fools or like this person's like delusional. How do they never question themselves? And it's like, how do you know they don't? Yeah. They could just be really good at putting on that act. And I think that's something that we have to, you know, remind ourselves a lot of times when we get into mindsets like that of like, I don't know. I bet that really super fucking confident person is terrified. Yeah. And like thinks questions everything that they say. They're just doing a really good job of acting like they are. And like they probably feel the same way as you, you know? I was thinking about it. Your wife, Greta. Uh, uh, Sisters, December 18th. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, check it out. Please check it out. I'm sure anybody <laughs> listening to this, I'm sure, was going to check it out anyway. But now yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they had already bought tickets. This is definitely the demo. Yeah. She, she has a, a pretty prominent, small but prominent role in the movie St. Vincent where mm-hmm. she's opposite Bill Murray. Yes. Uh, uh, and it's, it, it was in the trailer. It's one of the first things that you see in the trailer is them uh, interacting with each other. And when I saw that, I was thinking of, of like, psychologically, how you simplify 
being in front of Bill Murray so that you're mm. responding to Bill Murray and not responding to his reputation. Yeah. And it's the easiest thing in the world to let somebody's reputation fuck with your ability to be specific with them. Because there's often, like, we give that note about be specific, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you could take that note as name things specifically, which that's how most people take that note, and that's a, a correct thing to do. But you could also take that note as be real know really specifically who you're interacting with right now. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I think that that I'm perfectly happy to watch scenes where not a lot of information is actually being put into words, but I get these people because it's so clear to yeah. me that their thoughts are yeah. so specific. And that has to do with making very concrete choices about the person in front of you mm-hmm. and knowing how you're responding to them and knowing why you're responding the way that you're responding. So, so... That's what I thought when I saw the trailer of St. Vincent of, Jesus, there must be this one window of a second where your brain is just dealing with the reputation of this person in front of you, and you're not specifically seeing this other actor and playing off of them. Yeah. You're just, you're in front of like a myth. And that must be, it must take everything in, in your power to cut through that, to do the job that you have to do. Yeah, right. And, and in a place like L.A. where... I assume that's a big part of the spirit of the place. It, people's reputations precede them everywhere you go, right? Mm-hmm. Like learning to manage that, I, I imagine, is sort of similar to like early in your improv career when you learn to manage your own insecurities and mm-hmm. get up and perform anyway and yeah. not let those things become distortions that fuck with your ability to communicate just on a much larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, right. The, the coexistence of fear and despite that fear action like it, it it never goes away that it's always there of, of working with different people and uh fighting through and then also then like i'm sure lewis i'm sure you have in doing shows with your students right the first time a student of lewis cornfeld does a show with lewis cornfeld that's got to be a fucking moment. Like, I think, you know... They say the first time's the best time. It really. is, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it hurts a little. Um, no, nobody says the first time's the best time. <laughs> nobody has no, ever said that. No one has ever said that. No. But you objectively want them to come in and not be reverent to you. Right. You want them to come in, take the gloves off, and play with you. Right. And wrestle with you. And, and just get in the ring and do it. Um, and I think as soon as you have the first time you have that moment of realization and the more that you have that moment, the more that you realize going into a situation with other people like that, be they, uh, be they uh, someone like Bill Murray or like even like a, a casting director in an audition, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, then the first time you cast something, you're like, man, I wish these people, like I get that they're nervous. I want them to come in and like yell at me. Yeah. I want them to come in and flip chairs over in this room. I want them to come in and be the boldest, strongest, most confident, most outlandish versions of themselves. I don't want to see their fear, right? Of like, I just want to see your power. Yeah. That as soon as you have experienced that on the other end where you're like, oh, this person, I feel like they're being like very respectful and reverent to me. And you're like, I don't want that. And then go to the next day and you're like, oh, I'm working with this person. How am I going to treat them? Let's wrestle. It's so hard when you feel that somebody else has all this power and authority and, mm-hmm. and experience and knowledge and whatnot. It's so hard to make this mental shift, but I think that it's a really good mental shift to make, uh, uh, to think about, you know what, my job, I got to make them feel comfortable. Yeah. It, 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 
it, it, like there's something for me, and I think this is a big difference between you and me as improvisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we'll both have that exact same thought in that situation if we sense that somebody's playing with us and they're and they're kind of afraid of it. You'll bring more of an energy of I just want your power right now, and I think I'll kind of bring more of an energy of like you're okay. There's some. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like my strategy of, of doing that has, has less to do with like, just get the stick out of your butt and and let's dance Mm -hmm. and much more to do with like, Oh, I got to make you comfortable right now. And that's like a position that counterintuitively when, when, when you're dealing with somebody with more experience or more power or more perceived authority, whatever it is, counterintuitively, actually making that shift is a really smart thing to do. To think of it as like, my job is not to prove myself to them. My job is to make them comfortable watching me. For me, that's something that is like a workable way to think about it. Right, which I think I, you're, I'm talking about the end, you're talking about the means. Right. If that would be the method right. by which you would make someone feel powerful, right. feel confident, and feel comfortable performing with you. Um, that you would project an air of, you're okay. Right. We're good. You're doing great. We're doing this together. Yeah. Here we are. Um, That's a very funny idea to walk into an audition and project to the casting director. You're doing great. You're killing it. But I love that. <laughs> I think uh, casting director would be different than. <laughs> I love that. I'm trying that the next time Just I go. Me. You're killing it. Hey, yeah. You guys are doing really great. Really this awesome. session's really running smoothly. I'll tell you what. I've I got a lot of them would this. really <laughs> love to hear that, too. I've been on both sides of that situation. And when you're casting, it fucking sucks. Yeah. It sucks. It's the worst. Yeah. And And you get so used to people either being afraid or, mm-hmm. or angry at you. People come in angry already. They've like already determined that like that you're fucking their mojo and so they're already pissed off at you. Oh my God. Really? Yeah, You've had that happen? I've had it happen. It's weird. So, so like it would be like very endearing to have somebody come in with like, hey, you guys are doing a really great job. Well, that's, I, I think like, it, yeah, you just assume that everyone that you work with who's not your immediate peer is some kind of alien yeah. who has some totally separate life experience and like they didn't get up in the morning and have some shitty breakfast and like say goodbye to some person that they really love and like hope doesn't get hit by a car. And then they like came to their office and are like stressed out about stuff or feeling good about stuff. Like they're, they're doing the same thing that you are. And, and anytime we don't lend people around us, that sort of benefit of the doubt of like, Oh, you're, you're a person here. Then like, I don't know. You, you, you sort of give yourself one strike against yourself yeah, just from the jump by, by sort of making that person an alien and, and acting like you aren't sort of like living the same life. I think like that's been sort of my lifelong thing is, is like I'm a real coward and uh, <laughs> uh, I am. It's true. And, and, and I'm definitely I, reflects it in your behavior and all the choices that you've made. I'm sure. Right? Well, there's, there's like this little <laughs> bit of something in me that, that like resists it. You know what I mean? But like, I, I have always been the kind of person to just assume that the grown ups around me kind of know what they're doing and leave it at that. And um, so like, you know, it's this chronic thing of, of always feeling like, well, I don't know the answer. Everybody else must know the answer. So I'll kind right. of like, uh, uh, you know, I'll let you kind of like have it, whatever it is. Going back to what you were talking about, about that moment when you're younger, where, where you kind of realize that you're funny or you use your funny for the first time to, mm-hmm. you know, as a way to like turn the tables on people. <laughs> That's something that actually like... I love, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this conversation. It's just, this is what it reminded me of. 
that little guy who like in seventh grade realized that like, oh, the shortcut to not having other people laugh at me is if I do something deliberately to make them laugh. And then, right. Like that little guy is the part of me that isn't enshrouded in cowardice and, (laughs) and, and feeling that everybody else has their shit together and somehow is superhuman. And you're the one who doesn't have your shit together and doesn't know anything. That's the part that has this little like rebellious, uh, 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 spin to it. And that's the part of me that comes out when I'm improvising. It's like that guy who suddenly, like my characters on stage tend frequently to be extremely confident uh, and not like take shit from people. For, you know yeah. what I mean? Like just like the opposite of how I feel all the time. Where the hell am I going with this conversation? Uh, <laughs> you're, um, you're trying to make the argument of cowardice, which I think you're going to have a very difficult time with. Well, <laughs> it's the thing that's there all the time until it's not there. Sure. You know what I mean? It's there until you step into the spotlight and, and just have to get on the business of doing what the fuck you have to be doing. And then yeah. it goes away. And that's a lesson that you keep on learning over and over and over again is like, just get out there and do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like snap out of it. Uh, um, but there's something very like, I forget it all the time. I forget the fact that like when you defer authority to other people because you perceive them as, as, uh, knowing the answers and you know uh, uh you end up dehumanizing them you you treat them very non-specifically right you treat them very generally yeah. with this kind of general sense of reverence that's like unpleasant to them and it perpetuates for you this feeling of of inability it's a it's a childlike behavior to throw the responsibility of knowing something onto someone else as opposed to deciding and finding out the answer for yourself right that you simultaneously sort of otherize that person and also turn yourself into a kid right who is helpless and that then doesn't like help you go out and and be like you know what i really do think this is funny yeah the last time you did it you're like i don't know what do you think and it's like you're you're you just start to dig yourself into this pit of turning yourself into more and more of a, of, of, of a child who doesn't know the answers, yeah. which is, you know, it sucks. It's not, it's not super funny. Well, especially to like, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I kind of feel like our job as comedians is to find something funny that nobody's found funny before, whether that be a topic or whether that be like a way of approaching something or what, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like our job is to not just repeat the steps that other people have already figured out about how to make something funny, but mm. we kind of have to have new ideas and new perceptions. And it's sort of impossible to do that if you're constantly deferring your ability and your honesty. If you're deferring your honesty so that other people's opinions count more than yours and you're the perpetual student, there's a way to be a perpetual student that I think is very healthy. And then there's a way to be a perpetual student where really you're just pissing away your power. Really, you're just deferring it, and you're using that as an excuse to not just get on with the business of making your own discoveries in this life. Yeah. But you're also preventing your own ability to give your unique contribution to comedy, which is to find something funny in a way that nobody else has found it before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... uh, If you're not... Everyone becomes the same then. Right. If you got eight people in a room... I think back to like uh, magnet sketch stuff of when I was directing some teams and that was like the most fun thing in the world. And I think after the team sort of got comfortable with each other, 
you had eight people like singing their truth Mm -hmm. as loud as they could. And it was all different truths, Mm -hmm. but that then allowed you to add so much more to each sketch. Add so many more jokes to each sketch. Add such stronger, uh, like more toothsome takes and jokes and games to every single sketch because you didn't just have everyone deferring and passing it along to the funniest person in the room or to the, uh, the person whose sketch it was, um, that you suddenly had everyone unafraid to, uh, sort of go out there and like, you know, in that safe space, be like, what if we did this? Uh, and, and, and that was great. And then suddenly you get that many more people working on something. There can be eight bodies in the room, but you might only have one person contributing, yeah. even though everybody's talking. But if everyone defers to that one person, then it's, you know, it's tough. You don't get that beautiful melting pot of, of like eight really funny people all firing. I love the independence of it. When you really, when you feel together enough to actually be honest and to actually like go looking for what you find funny in something rather than, rather than doing it, you know, correctly or what, you know, however you want to think about yeah. it. I, I love that feeling of independence of like realizing, Oh, this is what I think that to me is, is what I love. I don't go in knowing what I already think and then looking to prove it through this scene or prove it through mm-hmm. this character. You just kind of like start exploring the situation or exploring this idea. And, and at least for me, there's this moment where I realize, oh, wait a minute, that's my point of view on this. And that it makes you feel very independent. It makes you feel like, oh, I own a point of view on this. That's fucking fabulous. <laughs> do, you, do you, when you write stuff, do you write that way as well? It, you know, it depends. I, I find writing so miserable partly because I can never <laughs> figure out how to do it the same way twice. Right, and so like that is always like it's like having a home where the door is never in the same spot. You always gotta like anyway. But uh, uh, yeah, if, when I'm writing, it, don't back out of that beautiful metaphor it's like not, that. Well, it's like a weird metaphor. Like the ejector seat after that golden, beautiful lotus of a metaphor. You're too nice. There's a much better metaphor to get that same idea. But no, but, no, you know, there isn't. That thanks, is man. peak metaphor. Thanks. I'm, I'm now. I'm feeling pretty good about that metaphor. Now, actually. Uh, um, there, when I'm writing, it has more, I think, to do... There's a moment where it goes from feeling like a character on the page that I'm making up that actually feels very close to like a neutral voice or something. It's like a description mm-hmm. of somebody to suddenly realizing a weird way that they feel about things. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it's actually in seeing how I'm different from this person that makes it click and make it feel like I can start to put words into their mouth. I don't know if I can like clarify that. Yeah. You, when you sort of key in on that person's point of view, maybe. Yeah. And how, how the angle of, of the sort of different angle that it is from your own feed them details and see how they respond to it and, and be surprised at ways that they're responding. There's usually a moment when you're writing where like a joke comes out or, or a sentence comes out that actually catches you a little bit by surprise too. It like comes out of you in a way that's like, Oh, it's like my brain just built a little tiny mini brain inside of it. Yeah. And that mini brain just processed something in a way that was completely surprising, but totally fits by, by the, the input rules that I placed into that mini brain. When, what is that like for you when you, when that happens in those moments? I, I, I know what it's like for me and it's a very specific way that it happens. It's always sort of the same way. Um, empathy. 
I feel like I'm looking, I'm talking, because I don't really write sketches too much, I'm, I, but I write stories. There's a feeling of going from writing the story as a writer trying to beat out what should happen to suddenly feeling like I'm seeing the story through somebody else's eyes. And usually the feeling yeah. is that's when I go into that zoned out place where, where then I'll just start writing for two hours. Yeah. And most of it is useless garbage that doesn't go anywhere, but <laughs> it's no longer me trying to like process what the next step is. It, it just, right. you start kind of seeing it from somebody else's point of view and then your fingers start moving. Right. What, what is it like for you? Uh, real similar. Yeah. That I think as soon as, uh, as soon as I go from the aerial view callback yeah. down to being within that, if it's like a model train that suddenly it shifts to being, no, that's a real train. Right. And I'm a little man. I'm looking no, out the I'm window real of this. Man. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, and it starts to, once I sort of place myself within a scene. Right. And then I, I sort of have this, this freedom where it's like, oh shit, we're here. We've like plugged into the matrix and now we can do whatever we want. And I start to, you know, it's like, it, it goes like double and triple time in my head uh, and characters start, start speaking and because it's not me anymore, it's them. They're freed to be their most ridiculous selves yeah. and to say these insane things where it's like Russ would never say that, but this character, Evan, definitely would. Because uh, Evan isn't a real person. <laughs> We've ne- There's no human being named Evan. You yeah, know? right. Uh, you you be- just invented that name. I just invented right that Right before name. this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Evan, I don't know how to say it. It's a new word. We can make it up as we go. But that person is freed from all restraints. Yeah. That person is, uh, he, he's totally programmable. He or she, I don't know the gender. Um, and, and that's so freeing. But it, 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 I think same thing as what you're saying. You you at a certain point go from seeing it through your eyes to having their eyes and to sort of becoming that other character. And then there's this freedom. You're no longer yourself. You're just this other character who can say and do anything. That, that's how I feel when I'm improvising a lot, especially like if, if I'm improvising, like if I'm playing with Rick and we have like a long time to do a scene, that's how it feels to me. Mm-hmm. It, it's like progressively, uh, uh, peeling away layers and seeing more and more. like I, I like having characters thoughts suddenly like crop up you know yeah. and that's actually when I'm writing I don't really use improv in my writing at all I don't use any improv techniques to like generate ideas but that's the thing that I take from improv when I'm writing is I will start to write the scene the same way that I would be playing it if I were actually on stage with somebody mm-hmm. and that to me is a key difference when I'm struggling with something I'm writing it like a guy in a room on a laptop yeah when it gets really interesting, I, if, if, mentally, I'm in the same space as I am when I'm on a stage. It, I'm looking at it from inside the story. Yeah. And, and kind of walking around and, and like looking to see what I notice in there. Yeah. How are you right now creatively? Are you blocked? Are you pretty free? Uh, uh, it depends on the half hour that you grab me. It fluctuates pretty, pretty it, rapidly? Yeah. I just finished a story that I'm pretty proud of. Um, and, and now I'm on deadline to come up with a few more pitches. So I'm feeling mm-hmm. constipated again. I'm, I'm back into the thing of like, Jesus, where do stories come from? <laughs> and, you- and so I did that thing where it's like, okay, I came up with a whole bunch of pitches that I think would be funny or interesting. And then mm-hmm. went through them and was like, this is all such bullshit because this is so clearly me cleverly taking two different ideas and putting them together to see if that would create a conflict that's worthwhile. And it doesn't feel like, oh, this doesn't reflect anything that I actually 
think about the world or anything that I right. like notice about people. This is just so clearly a writing exercise. Do you notice that that's always true? I think so. I, I think you've what never it, you've never found some gold in something that it was sort of like artificially generated. Oh no, for sure. Like doing like the the, the rule of nines or whatever, the you know the rule of tens for sure. Mm-hmm. And if you deliberately go out of your way to write ten shitty ideas there's almost always going to be one or two that make you laugh two weeks later. Yeah. And it's like, that, that's something. Even, even like an exercise as stupid as like, come up with 10 stupid names. You're probably going to come up with one that the moment you write, it doesn't feel like anything. But two yeah. weeks later, you look at it and it's like, that's a fucking funny name. That, that, that's a guy. I'll put that guy somewhere. Evan. Evan. What a weird It's ridiculous. Who would even, who can pronounce that? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it totally. I mean, there, there's definitely you find you find gold in the shit sometimes. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's usually more a thing of like generating a lot of stuff that makes me really unhappy, mm-hmm. and then finding something that feels right, and then you start to explore it, and then you, you nail it, and you're like, that works, and then you wake up the next day and you read it, and it's like, the fuck, that's garbage, yeah. and then you realize that like, wait a minute, if I tell the story from the point of view of the woman behind the counter who's just in that one scene for a second, then that's interesting, and, yeah. and then the whole process happens again, and then like two months later, the story you know, takes place in a completely different environment with totally different people, but you have it. Yeah, there's so much, uh, <laughs> it's like to get to the end product of an awesome sketch. It's like buying a brand new, like minivan. You buy a brand new Honda Odyssey. Then you like crash it straight into a wall at 60 miles an hour. And then the only thing that works left is like, you got like the chassis and like part of the engine. So you save that, throw away the rest of the car. Then it turns into like a, a fucking Ford truck. It's like an F one fifty now with the old minivan engine and chassis crash that thing against the wall at about a hundred miles an hour. Now the only thing left that works is the rear view mirror and like the license plate is still hanging on. So you take them, you put them on a motorcycle now and you just keep on like keeping whatever parts work, slamming it against the wall and then rebuilding the thing, uh, as, as best you can and hopefully not abandoning it in some scrapyard. But by the time it gets to that finish line, maybe it's got the air freshener that it originally had, but you've slammed it against enough walls that you know that the thing can get your family to school or something. Right. You know, and that's, it's, I, I, I asked you that question because I myself feel like I'm in a, a bit of a dry spell, I think, cause we just finished our 23rd episode on this show and you work on the same show for 23 weeks in a row plus pre-production stuff. And you, you sort of get in like a, 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 not a rut, but a groove that isn't necessarily a helpful groove. Mm-hmm. And then coming out of it now, we've got some off time of like getting back into it. I'm like, oh man, my ability to rebuild a car is shit right now. Cause I've been working with a working car for such a long time. Right. Like this car worked pretty early on and we've just been driving that thing around and th- reminding myself of the normalcy of how it feels to create something which is just getting like kicked in the nuts and the heart and the brain simultaneously by a three-legged monster. Like how many times you have to get kicked in all three organs before you get to the place where that thing is done. That it's not simply, all right, you're going to get kicked once and it's done. Or like you're never going to get kicked and it'll be fine. 
where it's like, it's not like that. Oh God, it's such a, such a struggle. And I'm just now getting back into it. And it's, oh my God, it's difficult. Yeah. It's so difficult and it's so painful. Yeah. <laughs> I've, become, I've become so soft. I'm like, oh God, this hurts. I don't want, I have to do it again. It's, no. it's, it's legit work. It, it's, mentally and emotionally, it takes a lot out of you. It's, it's, it's a lot work. of work. It's like, and the work is the easy part. It's the, the emotional endurance to get deflated and destroyed and like whipped around. What was that? Was that a, was that like on Street Fighter? Like one of the characters like picked the other one up and just like, like a rag doll. Yeah. Like oh yeah. Around. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what video game that was. Street Fighter. Yeah. You're right. Mortal Kombat. What do you think, Mortal, Evan? Mortal, maybe Mortal Kombat. Hey, wait a minute. There's an Evan right there. Wait, wait a minute. minute. Holy shit! This thing is catching on. Oh my god. This did, is. You know what? This is a great name. Did it's, we make him appear? Uh, he's nodding his head. Did we conjure you like a very low key Candyman kind of situation? He's, he say his name. <laughs> like looked into a mic. Once and said, and <laughs> he said he said Evan once, and he just popped in. That's just like that's just like calling someone over to your desk. You're like Evan. Whoa. That's uh, I, actually I love the idea of low key Candyman. <laughs> it doesn't. It it's doesn't like, start. It's just like it, just it really Jeff is twice up the stairs. It's the supernatural ability to basically just have somebody come to you when you call them. It's fucking mm-hmm. a complete waste of supernatural. Yeah. If that was the first interaction you had with with like any sort of art, me, like art as a child, and you'd be like, "Wait, this is how you contact someone? You right. say their name three times in a mirror." Some kid being like grandma, 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 and his <laughs> mom, <laughs> mom. It's actually exactly what it is. It's totally like. Uh, uh, yeah, man. It, yeah, it, it, the mental calisthenics that go into or into producing anything worthwhile. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, it, it it takes a shitload out of you. Which goes back to then that brilliant professional advice, which is your job is to be funny even when you're not. Yeah, your job is to tell stories even when you don't have any stories to tell. That's it. And when you think of it like that, that like. You know, when I worked that one job, that got me through it. Yeah. Being in the middle of a show and knowing that, like, man, I'm not. I don't have, like, wind in my sails. And then just remembering that, like, it doesn't fucking matter. doesn't make a difference. Do the next thing that you got to do. And it's like, oh, that's, that's great. And, 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 and it, it, yeah, that, that's it. That's all I got to say. What, it doesn't matter to me always felt like an empty argument. It felt like one that was never helpful. Mm-hmm. Like anytime anyone said to me, it doesn't matter. I was like, I know, but that doesn't help me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me feel any better. That doesn't help me do my job or do what I'm trying to do any better by someone saying that. You know, it's like when someone says, cheer up. I just, fuck I just, you. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> it, you know what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I get it. I get it in a vacuum. I understand it. But I, I think... And maybe tell me what you think about this doing shows and knowing doing, doing those shows and knowing that like people are coming into the house at eight shows going to be done at nine forty five. of maybe it's not, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's more like you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it doesn't matter if my boss says like, give me 10 jokes and I give him two shitty jokes. We have a show that we have to shoot on Tuesday Two of those shitty jokes, two of those good jokes are going to be in there and like one really shitty joke is going to be in there and you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Not it doesn't matter. 
you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Life is going to keep going. Like, yeah. oh, you don't have an idea? Give me a shitty one right now because you can't stop it. Yeah. And like that to me, maybe the flip of like, you're talking about the end. I'm talking about the means now. That's interesting. Because, right, you can't stop it. Yeah. And they're like, because you can't stop it, it, it doesn't matter. Knowing that is interesting. It's a little bit like when you're running late and a train just stalls. And you go through that period where you're freaking out and Mm. then you just kind of have that like Zen state of like, oh, out of my hands. There's literally nothing that I can do about it. There's something to that, having that thought in mind that like you can't stop it. Uh, uh, This thing's going to happen one way or the other. That I think when you take it out of the thing, it it makes you, you know what it is? It makes you stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's the thing. (laughs) That's the thing, honestly. Yeah. It, because you're going to feel shitty about stuff and you're going to have jokes that aren't great. And that's just like part of your career. You pepper your career with like you have ups and downs. And then it's your kind of batting average that ends up counting in the end, you know. And, 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 and you get these reps in that get you stronger and better. And, and, and you become more skillful and you become more flexible and you push yourself harder and you become better at it. And you become more original and you, and you, you give up on some of the rules that you learned and you find your voice and all that stuff. But the thing that's like constantly blocking in the way is when it's not feeling great, you feel sorry for yourself. And learning to tell yourself that thing to just cut that shit out, that's pretty good. Yeah. And the train is the... <laughs> I like that your metaphor there of a train was a stalled train, not a classic runaway train that could not be stopped. Oh, yeah. Yours was a stalled train that could not be started. Yeah. Both of which are locomotive metaphors of fatalism that cannot be controlled. Yeah. I think that very nicely wraps it up. <laughs> choo choo! That's Russ the Armstrong, train. ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much for Thanks talking, so man. It's been a pleasure. And yeah. thank you guys for listening. This has been the Magma Theater Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Evan Ford Barden. Thank you to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg. Thank you to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, broadcasting to you live from the fabulous New York City here in the Empire State, New York State, the only state. I want to be in. Thank you to our guest. It was all stupid shit. Thank you to our guest, Russ Armstrong, for talking today. Thank you to you guys listening. Bye, everyone. So long. Bye. Bye. Go see Sisters, December 18th. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.